BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with The China Project. That's right. From September 1st, as you hopefully already know, we are changing our name from SubChina to The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access to not only our great daily newsletter, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and, of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from the other side of the Appalachians is a man who only picks quarrels and provokes trouble while strolling the streets of Beijing and other Chinese cities wearing a kimono. The <laughs> one and only Jin Yumi, a.k.a. Jeremy Goldcorn. Greet the people, won't you? <laughs> Kaiser, that was a pretty ridiculous one. You're referring, of course, to the poor young lady in Suzhou who was arrested, a cosplayer she was, for just uh, walking around the streets of Suzhou in a kimono. Because apparently yeah. wearing a kimono is uh, uh, kind of a... Uh, evidence that you are a, a traitor. Um, anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Jeremy, you're joining the podcast for a second week in a row. It must be slow over on the newsletter side of things. Are, are you are you excited, <laughs> though, about the name change? Yeah, no, not slow. <laughs> not slow at all. The, the name change is great. So we're going to be the China Project, um, which means uh, hopefully uh, certain people who thought our old name was a bit ridiculous are going to love the new name. Uh, and we're also, we've been launching a lot of new uh new stuff. We have a new YouTube show, uh, Live with Lizzie Lee, in which Lizzie interviews all kinds of interesting and influential people who know about China uh, and business in China and politics. And we have a new TikTok channel by a young lady by the name of Susan St. Dennis. Uh, and if you are into TikTok, uh, it's called China Vibe. Go check it out. It's uh, really good. And I say that as someone who doesn't actually like TikTok. Anyhow. <laughs> well, I, I love that channel. I think she's fantastic. Um, and she I think she sort of represents our, our viewpoints very, very well. Anyway, a little over two years ago, in June of 2020, uh, Bloomberg's chief economist, Tom Orlick, joined me on the show to talk about his then new book, 
China, the bubble that never pops. I think Jeremy was speaking at a QAnon event and couldn't make it at the time. Isn't that right, Jeremy? Um, That was, of course, just a few months into the pandemic. And with this, you know, weird time dilation effect that COVID seems to have had, it does feel like an awfully long time ago. Certainly a lot has happened in the time since. And Tom has a revised edition of the book coming out any day now uh, at a moment when, once again, there are a lot of people who are convinced that this time it really will pop. So we've invited Tom back onto the show to talk about what's new in in the book, uh, to see whether events of the last couple of years have either reinforced or caused him to rethink his earlier positions and to get his, you know, take on the current situation. In March of this year, I had a brief conversation with Tom for my invited to tea Q&A column. Uh, for the website, where we talked about, among other things, the reasons why he doesn't think setting GDP targets is such a bad idea. Uh, And I would encourage anyone interested in more uh, to read that column, which you can find easily by just searching for Tom's name and my name uh, and sub China. Anyway, Tom Orlick, welcome back to Seneca. Always great to have you, man. Great to be here, Kaiser, Jeremy. Before we kick off, I've got one burning question uh, for Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy, when you spoke at the QAnon event, were you wearing a kimono or was that a later? (laughs) (laughs) You're giving away my secrets, Tom, and I'm going to be in trouble on both sides of the Pacific. (laughs) We're going to have to change the subject now. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I, I have a great way to change the subject. Tom, I think we should start off with a little bit of a recap for those of our listeners who didn't hear our podcast with you uh, two years ago, or who haven't read the first edition of the book. So as succinctly as you can manage, what are the main reasons that the China bears had, at least until recently, been so fundamentally wrong? Uh, Why has the Chinese bubble not popped? So I lived in China from 2007 to 2018. And throughout that time, there was a thread of pessimism, even a thread of doom, running through the Western commentary on China's economy and financial system. Yes, we said the headline growth numbers look impressive, but if you poke a little bit beneath the surface, what you discover is it's a Potemkin village. The boom is built on an unsustainable basis with a huge buildup in debt and an outsized role for big, inefficient, dinosaur state-owned enterprises. So it can't last and it's going to end in a bust. Uh, And as I was packing my bags in 2018, I sort of looked around and had a rare moment of self-awareness and uh, realized, you know what, this bust we've been predicting for the last best part of the last two decades doesn't seem to have arrived. And so as I put pen to paper for my book, I was trying to explain why. And the conclusion I arrived at was that the China bears aren't wrong in their identification of the problems. China does have too much debt. It does have a big, inefficient state sector of the economy. But what the China bears fail to recognize is that China also has countervailing sources of strength. Debt is too high. Banks have made too many loans. Many of those loans, more than the banks acknowledge, have probably turned bad. But China's banks also have a really, really stable funding base. And banks with a stable funding base don't normally fall over. State-owned enterprises are big and they are inefficient and they can be a drag on growth, but they are also engines of development. They're instruments which China's government uses to 
build the infrastructure which the country needs to move up the industrial value chain. And they're also instruments which the Chinese government can use to right the ship coming out of a slump, like the second quarter slump following the COVID lockdowns in Shanghai and Beijing. It's the state sector which leads the charge, hmm. beginning capital spending, beginning to hire more workers at a moment when private sector is still too cautious to get the economy going again. But of course, Tom, as uh, Kaiser said, a whole lot has happened since we last spoke on, on the podcast and since you published the book. Obviously, it's almost impossible to write a book on something as fast moving as the Chinese economy that will stay relevant for years. Uh, you were, in fact, able to write a chapter on the COVID response. And that chapter, given China's rapid recovery, was still fairly sunny. Uh, and you did have a postscript about the common prosperity agenda, which we were all talking about for some months. Uh, we were calling it the Red New Deal, you might remember. But of course, things changed again uh, with the Shanghai lockdowns and all, and things are looking uh, quite a lot less sunny than they were in the uh, earlier months of the pandemic. We'll get into this a little later this hour, but generally speaking, is China looking quite as clever as it was four months ago? So if we were having this conversation at the end of 2020 or the end of 2021, China's response to the COVID pandemic looked pretty formidable. Yes, there are some big unanswered questions about uh, opacity, both in terms of failing to share information with the Chinese people and the rest of the world right at the beginning of the pandemic. But in terms of containing their domestic outbreak, saving lives and getting the economy going again in 2020 and 2021, China's policymakers look pretty clever, certainly pretty impressive relative to most of the rest of the world. Right now, the situation looks considerably different. Here in the United States, in Europe, at an enormous expense in human life, let's not forget that more than a million people have died here in the United States and hundreds of thousands of people have died in Europe, populations have achieved a measure of resilience, a measure of immunity to the COVID virus. And that means that the economy is open, people are back in the office, children are back in school, and daily life looks, well, not quite like it did pre-COVID, but not too far away. In China, because there's been no widespread outbreak, and because there's been no move to acquire the advanced mRNA vaccines, which give a high level of uh, resistance or immunity to the virus, the population is still COVID naive. And we've seen some of the big costs of that in the Shanghai lockdown in the second quarter of this year, We've seen the enormous negative impact it has on growth. We see the problems continuing with lockdowns in Hainan, China's island holiday destination. And there's still a big unanswered question. How does China exit from COVID zero? And how costly will that be in human lives and in economic growth? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's kind of a catch-22. I mean, you know, the immunological naivete is kind of a result of China's early successes and, and now... That is precisely what's keeping it from being able to to open faster in the absence. Well, also of- the fact that they don't seem uh, willing to import uh, vaccines and thus kind of show up the fact that the Chinese vaccines aren't that great. Uh, isn't that the other factor? Well, we, we know the thing is we don't really know because there are so few COVID cases how the, the Chinese vaccines perform, you know, in terms of, of 
reducing hospitalizations. As a cynic, I, I can offer an interpretation of that, Kaiser. But let's not get stuck yeah, in a yeah, COVID okay. argument. Uh, let's, let's I have a, um, a QAnon meeting to go to <laughs> later. So, uh. <laughs> and a Kimono to press ahead of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Tom, you used the same phrase that I, I've used before when talking about China's experience of recent years, stress test, uh, though you use it mainly to talk about the economic system. Uh, what was this stress test? How, how did the Chinese economy fare in in the early months of 2020 and so forth? And what conclusions do you think the leadership drew from, from that? So if we're to believe the China bears the pessimists on China's economy who say that it's on the verge of collapse, then China's debt is so high and China's state-owned enterprises are so inefficient and China's leaders so incapable of acting effectively that when a huge challenge came along, and clearly COVID was a huge challenge, China's economy should have collapsed. And that's clearly not what happened. Mm-hmm. In the first quarter and the second quarter of 2020, the economy locked down. But because the banks are well-funded, they could continue operating. They could extend forbearance to businesses who had shut down and were temporarily unable to repay their loans. Because state-owned enterprises can act from time to time on national priorities rather than a sort of narrow quarterly results basis, They could hold on to their workers, and once the economy was reopened, they could catalyze the recovery by beginning more investment projects and bringing more workers on. So I think in some respects, at least in 2020 and 2021, China passed the COVID stress test rather well. In an important other respect, though, I think COVID has underscored some of the bigger weaknesses of the Chinese system. So China has pointed at the problems of uh, democratic systems, which were evident during the COVID crisis. Democratic systems where everybody has a voice and no one can tell anybody what to do were not able to contain the virus, not able to even have people do common sense things like wear masks. And that had some you know, terrible consequences here in the United States and in Europe. But non-democratic systems, single-party systems, authoritarian systems like China also have some very serious weaknesses. And one of those weaknesses is that they find it too hard to listen to critical voices and too hard to move away from the wrong policy, even when it's clear that it's the wrong policy. Right. And I think we're seeing that now with COVID zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would tend to agree. Tom, in response to the great financial crisis that uh, seems like ancient history right now, 2008-2009, China opened the stimulus taps and coordinated with the United States. And the conventional wisdom now uh, around the world seems to me to be that China was very successful and that the benefits weren't just seen by China, but the whole world actually benefited from China's handling of the crisis and from the stimulus. Now, it comes to COVID, the U.S. economic policy response has involved impressive amounts of stimulus. I think people are starting to argue now that there was too much of it, actually. But it wasn't matched by China, at least not in 2020 or 2021. Uh, What was behind uh, that lack of interest in stimulus? Why did they not do a stimulus program back then? And why are they apparently opening the taps now? 
Um, so I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons for it, Jeremy, Jeremy, and they both actually go back to what in China is viewed as the failures of the stimulus back in 20, 2008 and 2009. Um, so yes, China's stimulus back then, the sort of famous Wen Jiaobao 4 trillion yuan stimulus and all of the bank lending and investment, which that catalyzed, it restarted China's growth. Um, but it also put China on an unsustainable trajectory. Debt rose too high. It proved very difficult to turn the lending taps off. And that has contributed to the high level of financial risk in China, which is one of the reasons they can't now run a massive stimulus. Debt's already too high. They've kind of maxed out. The other reason is, well, you mentioned that the 2008-2009 stimulus was a kind of a generous stimulus, a stimulus which restarted the global economy. And that's true. And China, of course, will take the positive PR from that as they took the positive PR, for example, from their decision to stabilize the yuan during the Asian financial crisis back in the 1990s and provide a kind of anchor for stability in the region. But being generous to the rest of the world isn't normally an objective of national economic policy. Here in the United States, Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve or Janet Yellen at the Treasury doesn't think to themselves, how can I set an optimum economic policy for the rest of the world? They think to themselves, how can I set an optimum economic policy for the United States? And that's the same in China. It was a kind of desirable side effect for the rest of the world that China's stimulus was so generous in the great financial crisis and did catalyze a huge amount of commodity demand, for example, good news for the Australias and the Brazils of the world. Mm -hmm. But from China's perspective, that wasn't actually what they were aiming for. It wasn't a huge positive. Um, and they've actually become smarter about how they can deliver stimulus now so they can deliver more benefits at home at a smaller cost and with less spillovers to the rest of the world. So what's the, the next round of stimulus looking like? What form will it take? So, I mean, perhaps we're going to want to get, in, get into this a bit um, uh, in, in, in the discussion, uh, but uh, China's got two really big problems right now. Uh, so the first really big problem is COVID zero and how to exit mm -hmm. from that and the drag on growth that comes when you have to lock down big cities, even entire provinces. Um, the second problem is what's happening in the real estate sector. Real estate's the biggest driver of Chinese growth, um, but it's on an unsustainable trajectory, too much building, too much debt, um, and the attempts to kind of right the ship has triggered a significant downturn with sales, construction, and prices for China's property now all falling. Um, mm -hmm. Now, those two problems are difficult to solve at the same time, right? Um, right. If you want to solve the real estate problem, you want to pump a bunch of stimulus into the economy. Um, if you want to maintain COVID zero, actually pumping a bunch of stimulus into the economy can push in the other direction. Right. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, a tough nut to crack. And we will, as you say, get into both of these problems a little more extensively. But first, let me ask you know, dual circulation was a thing uh, not too long ago. Uh, we talked a lot about. You know, especially the sort of boosting of domestic demand. Uh, this was the initial response, I think, after the first big COVID wave in the spring of 2020. Um, that policy was sort of rolled out in May or June of, of that year. 
Uh, have we seen continued growth in domestic consumption as a percentage of GDP? And is this a priority right now for, for Beijing? So one of the problems with the COVID pandemic is that it has made the various different imbalances in China's economy even worse. Mm -hmm. So one of the big imbalances in China's economy is too much reliance on investment and exports to drive growth and not enough of a role for the domestic consumer. What's happened during the COVID lockdowns is, well, the government has been much better at keeping industry going than it has at keeping consumption and services going. Mm. Um, and there's an obvious reason for that, which is if you keep growth going by having a bunch of people continuing to go to work in their hygienic factories, you can probably control COVID. Um, if you keep growth going by encouraging everyone to go to restaurants or nightclubs or tourist sites, well, that's going to be pretty bad for containing COVID. Um, right. So the dual circulation economy aims to boost domestic demand. Um, and the pressing need to address the imbalances in China's economy mean that there's a need for more consumption. Um, but the pattern over the last two years, because of the overarching need to contain COVID, has been industry has done well, exports have done well, but domestic consumption, especially consumption of services, has suffered. Yeah. So that seems to have been sort of backburnered a bit. Let's let's talk a little bit about the common prosperity agenda. We talked just now about stress tests. And uh, in various talks that I gave last year, I often said that, that China's governance system had undergone a series of such stress tests in recent years as well, you know, beginning with the trade war and American efforts to kneecap Chinese tech, uh, the opprobrium that China had suffered because of Xinjiang, of course, uh, because of uh, what, what uh, the, the massive extra-legal internments there, and of course the crackdown in Hong Kong, and you know most recently the COVID pandemic. And Beijing felt though that it had emerged from this, at least um, when they were rolling out this common prosperity agenda, that they felt like you know they had passed the stress tests with flying colors. Uh, levels of, of regime support of political capital and credibility had never been higher. And and for that reason, I, I was arguing China was ready to, you know, break eggs and make an omelet. And that omelet was, you know, this whole common prosperity package, this Red New Deal. So addressing the, the, the primary contradiction, you know, that they decided was in 2017, you know, the main contradiction in society, uh, the whole range of social ills, um, putting the economy on a, a totally different footing. Uh, to what extent has now this whole agenda been derailed? Have these ambitions been backburnered or scaled back? Are, are they maybe still moving forward just without so much fanfare? So common prosperity agenda has got a lot in it, right? Yeah. You've got the cancelled ant financial IPO. You've got the smackdown of Didi for having its IPO here in the US. You've got the anti-monopoly crackdown on the big tech companies. You've got the crackdown on the entire online private tutoring industry. Um, so there's a lot which kind of comes under the umbrella of common prosperity. Now, many people, not people here on the uh, Seneca podcast, which is so balanced that I'm surprised you haven't got the guild of uh, tightrope walkers throwing bricks through your window because they're scared about the competition. <laughs> but some people who don't have the balance of the Seneca podcast have been quick to kind of scorn the common prosperity agenda and say, this is a Chinese Communist Party that hates entrepreneurs, 
that can't stand any challenge to their power and which is kind of capricious and unpredictable and throws destabilizing policies out there without any thought for the consequences. Um, My take on it is is a little bit different. uh, And I think it's reflected in your characterizing it as as a red new deal, right? I think actually, if we think about the objectives of the common prosperity agenda, let's have a more equal society, let's constrain the power of some of the tech monopolies which have grown so quickly and now have such an enormous influence over the economy and over our lives those are not specifically chinese objectives right here in the united states and in europe there's also a desire to have more equality there's also a desire to constrain the power of the giant tech monopolies so i tend to think that we can find kind of an explanation for the common prosperity agenda not in the kind of capriciousness and perniciousness of the Chinese Communist Party, but rather in the kind of social policy objectives that we see here in the United States, here in Europe, and guess what, in China as well. Now, even if we agree that achieving a higher level of equality and constraining the power of the tech monopolies is a good idea, I think many people would agree uh, that it is a good idea, it does come at a cost. Yeah. And that, that cost is a cost to growth. Now, If you're sitting in the middle of 2020 and you think you've solved COVID and the economy's booming, you probably think to yourself, yeah, I can pay a bit of a cost in terms of growth. Uh, I can pursue these kind of far-sighted long-term social objectives and GDP will be a bit lower, but I don't care. Yeah. After all, you've just had this instance in where you've suffered short-term pain for enduring gain, you know, the the whole V-shaped recovery thing, right? China tanked its economy quickly right away and then bounced back right so that was the lesson yeah i think that's exactly right and i i also i also wonder if that experience of the covid lockdowns where the economy didn't grow and there wasn't an enormous problem is actually going to prompt a longer term reevaluation by china's policymakers on what level of growth is acceptable if the economy can grow zero percent or even contract without there being massive problems perhaps they don't need to be targeting five six percent a year but on back on the common prosperity agenda, from where they are in 2022, still dealing with COVID zero, now dealing with a very, very challenging real estate slump, I think they probably think this isn't a good time to pursue those far-sighted objectives, which come at a cost in terms of short-term growth. And so, yes, it wouldn't be surprising if they were putting them on the back burner. Yeah. So some of the, the controls have been kept in place, like, you know, on uh, fintech companies, they're not really letting up on the cram schools that much. They're Still, you know, barreling forward and pushing, you know, toward hard tech away away from like the the tech sectors that the the party seems uh, to think are more frivolous, gaming and that sort of thing. Yeah, that does seem to be. Uh, I mean, that was a feature of of common prosperity the the push for for chips for hard technology. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, I would imagine Tom is likely to continue, especially with the U.S. now apparently trying to. Uh, restrict even older generation uh, generations of chip making tools uh, from export to the PR- PRC. Um, so, how would you say uh, China is faring in its efforts to be more technologically independent? So, one of the really striking things which has happened over the course of the COVID pandemic is China's international reputation has been hammered. Uh, I'm sure uh, Sinica uh, listeners have seen that famous Pew survey. Uh, which shows unfavorable views of China rocketing up in the United States, in Europe, and also amongst Asian neighbors. 
Um, yeah. And part of the reason for that uh, is the blame game over the origins of the COVID crisis. But there's also more to it. People don't like what they're seeing in Xinjiang. They don't like what they're seeing in Hong Kong. And for China, this is a pretty significant problem. It's a significant problem because China is an exporting nation. And in general, you want to have good relations with the countries you're selling to. It's also a problem, and this comes back to your question, Jeremy, because China is a net beneficiary of global technology transfer. China is still playing catch up with the West on technology. And so it has to import a bunch of things as part of its manufacturing processes, notably a bunch of semiconductors. And it is also working aggressively to try and assimilate technologies which it sees being used to drive higher productivity in the US, in Germany, in Japan, and elsewhere. Now, of course, China is not blind to the fact that its international ties are fraying. That was already clear under the Trump administration with the trade tariffs. It's become even more clear and kind of become, it's become clear under the Biden administration that Trump wasn't an aberration and rather that global ties, US-China ties, are now permanently damaged. We're not going to go back to the sort of happy relations we saw uh, under Clinton or Bush or Obama. And that's accelerating the Chinese drive for technology independence. Now, in one really important area, semiconductors, uh, China doesn't appear to have made very much progress. Um, yeah. And people point at that and say, see, China can't achieve technological independence. I don't actually hold that view. I think if you think about the history of the last 40 years, um, it's the history of China throwing a huge amount of money at attempting to assimilate foreign technologies, starting with simple stuff like how to make metals, and then moving up the value chain to things like trains and ships, and then moving up the value chain even further to stuff like sustainable energy, throwing a huge amount of money at, that, at, those, at those challenges, failing, 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 but then succeeding. And once they succeed and they have that technology, they can operate at such enormous scale that they can effectively price out any of their competitors elsewhere in the world. So, so far, they've not managed to deliver that on semiconductors. And that's sort of seen as a, a source of reassurance uh, for the US and, and Europe and Japan and others. Kind of, haha, China's trying. They're throwing a huge amount of money at it, but they haven't succeeded yet. I think the lesson of the last few decades is, yeah, they don't always succeed at first, but that doesn't mean they're not going to get there in the end. Right, right. That's uh, something Kaiser and I used to hear a lot of, uh, in the, of, especially in the 90s, but the 2000s uh, in the sort of tech scene in China, when most Chinese tech companies were you know, basically copying their Silicon Valley peers. Uh, and then suddenly there were companies like you know, Tencent came out with WeChat. And I think that was the first time when Western technology people suddenly got a bit of a fright because they were like, hell, that these people can innovate. Yeah. Anyway. So, Tom, to you know, you'd add to that the litany of things that people outside of China don't like, um, the Ukraine war and China's position in that uh, Taiwan Strait situation, especially you know surrounding Speaker Pelosi's trip and, and China's response, and of course you know the, the the controversial zero COVID policy and the lockdowns. Uh, 
Some pundits and some reporters are convinced that under all these accumulated external and internal stresses, we are now seeing cracks in the facade of unanimity uh, within the highest echelons of the leadership. Um, when it comes to economic policy, at least, you know, because, you know, Li Keqiang is often invoked as as the, the leader of this tacit opposition. What, what do you make of these claims? You know, I tend to view uh, any claims about Chinese elite politics with extreme skepticism. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that we have good sourcing for those claims. I don't think anyone in the standing committee or the Politburo or the Central Committee or the Central Committee alternates is sharing their thoughts on what's going on inside Chinese elite politics with anyone who's not already in that circle. Mm. That was what was so fascinating about that Borshi Lai moment, right? That right. huge scoop by Jeremy Page of the Wall Street Journal um, back when Xi Jinping was jockeying for his position as general secretary. Um, it was that it kind of opened a crack in Chinese elite politics and for a moment allowed people to look into the kind of the reality and the conflict and the um, uh, maneuvering which was going on. But I think that was a particular moment when there was a crisis and it opened a crack in the sort of facade and we could peer in, I don't think that happens very often. So, you know, I do hear these things from time to time, like Li Keqiang has a short-term view on the economy because he wants to get renominated, but Xi Jinping is already certain that he'll have another term. And so he's not so worried about it. That was one that we heard a few years ago. Right. I, I tend to, I tend to sort of have some, skepticism about uh the sort of the uh the basis of the basis of these claims so it's bullshit is what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) okay um tom let's go back to uh the real estate industry property uh, and talk about the situation with evergrande and the other big developers uh, with all the news about mortgage strikes uh desperate exhortations to get patriotic cadres to buy property to shore up the realty sector. I mean, is this the thing that could bring it all down and finally pop the bubble? Um, Just today, the FT reported on how the property developer Country Garden, which is another one of the biggest ones in China, estimated that first half profits fell by as much as 70%. Um, How has Beijing tried to address the situation? Uh, Is it actually working? So real estate could be the thing which knocks China's economy over. Um, It could be the thing which uh, finally means the Chinese bubble bursts and forces me to make an unpleasant call to Oxford University Press and ask if we can rename my book. Um, uh, (laughs) Why the bubble finally popped? What's the... (laughs) Exactly. With a a new preface on how I called it. Um, So... um, uh, if we look at if we look at if we look around the world and we sort of survey the history books, property plays a kind of starring role in financial crises. In 1989, in Japan, it was the bursting of the real estate bubble, which was the catalyst for the end of Japan's development miracle and the beginning of its lost decade of zero growth and deflation. Here in the United States, the subprime crisis. Uh, back in 2007, was the catalyst for the Great Recession and the global financial crisis. And in China, there's a really serious problem. 
the fundamental demand, which drove decades of real estate boom, has started to dry up because of shifting demographics. Less people means less demand for property. And the end of the urbanization boom, which brought hundreds of millions of rural residents into the cities. And of course, they needed homes as well. China's uh, property developers are over-leveraged and have built too many houses, those ghost towns which you read about. And it's not, it's not a pretty picture. And we're seeing now some indications that an unraveling is underway. Prices are down, construction is down, sales are down. Big real estate developers, you mentioned Evergrande, uh, have defaulted. Other big developers, you mentioned Country Garden, have seen a very, very significant drop in profits. So a systemic crisis uh, is a possibility, uh, and I don't rule it out. Um, at the same time, it's not my base case scenario uh, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is, if you look at the history of China's real estate sector, it's not a unbroken upward trajectory. It's a series of peaks and troughs. And what that means is that this is not China's policymakers' first rodeo when it comes to addressing a downturn in the property sector. They've been here before, uh, and they have a bunch of policy instruments which they can use to turn the sector around. They can cut down payment requirements. They can cut mortgage rates. They can ease financing conditions for real estate developers. They've begun to do all of these things. They can do significantly more if that's what's required to prevent a systemic crisis. The second reason is that we are where we are in part because of a deliberate policy choice by, by Beijing. Beijing decided in 2020 that it was time to put the real estate sector onto a sustainable trajectory and they imposed significant restrictions on real estate developers' access to finance. Now, they did that because they wanted to address the problem of moral hazard in the sector, to address the kind of the view of investors and uh, real estate developers that they could take on any risks. And if things went right, they'd make a huge amount of profit. And if they went wrong, the government would be in there to bail them out. Now, addressing moral hazard means allowing some real estate developers to fail. China allowed Evergrande to fail. They allowed other big developers like Kaiser and Fantasia to default on their borrowing. They've moved to address the problem of moral hazard. But China's policymakers are not crazy. They're not going to take their campaign against moral hazard so far that it craters the entire Chinese real estate sector and spills over into problems for the banks, which tips the economy into a financial crisis. Hmm. Oh, and I should point out that uh, Kaiser, a uh, real estate company, has got nothing to do with uh, Kaiser Guo. <laughs> well, that you know of. That you know of. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> I see. You know, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that they named it after me, right? <laughs> so, so, Tom, what what is Xi Jinping prioritizing right now as we move closer to the 20th Party Congress? I mean, it seems like there are an awful lot of fires to put out, a lot of you know simultaneous crises, both foreign and domestic. How is the leadership around Xi going about triage, as it were? 
So it's a really good question, Kaiser, and I'm I'm afraid I don't have a brilliant answer for you. Uh, uh, it's kind of uh, I think it's okay. So then put it another way: How would you? What would you prioritize? What do you think are the most urgent crises? So I think there's there's two big problems to deal with. The first is COVID zero, and the second is real estate. Um, and neither of them have an easy solution. Mm-hmm. On COVID zero, um, the challenge is how to move from a country which is COVID naive. Um, to a country which has a measure of immunity uh, and so can reopen and resume kind of normal life and openness to the rest of the world. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know exactly how China's policymakers are going to address that challenge. But when I think about how they address other challenges, what I generally see is a gradual, incremental, adaptive approach, right? Let's not try and do everything at once. Let's take a small step, see if we succeed, and then take another small step, retreat a bit if we have to, but keep things moving forwards. For COVID zero, I wonder if what that for the exit from COVID zero, I wonder if what that's going to mean after the Party Congress is a province by province or city by city approach to exiting. Let's pick a province. Let's seal it off from the rest of China. Let's bring in all of the best vaccines we have, all of the healthcare resources we have, and then let's let COVID go within that province. So we allow that province to build up some natural immunity, whilst hopefully minimizing the public health costs. And then let's learn from that experience and try and do it better in the next province and better in the next province. And then over the course of a year or a year and a half, you move the country from lockdowns and COVID naivety to hopefully immunity and openness. From your lips to Xi Jinping's ears. <laughs> On the real estate crisis, I think there's a bunch of stuff they've got to do. I think they need to ease macro policy, right? So they need to cut interest rates. They need to cut a tool which is kind of specific to China called the reserve requirement ratio to free up more money for banks to lend.、Mm-hmm. They need more fiscal stimulus. They need to encourage local governments to issue more bonds to pay for more infrastructure building to offset the drag from property. They also need to take steps which are specific to the property sector. They need to cut down payment requirements. They need to cut mortgage rates. They need to ease controls on who can buy a home to encourage more people to buy property. Within the property developers, they probably need to have a kind of tough decision. Which separates preterite from the elect, right? They need to say, "You property developers do not have a sustainable business model. We're going to allow you to go into bankruptcy, and you are the property developers. We think your finances look okay. We think you know how to run your business. You are going to survive, and you're going to take a larger share of the market, which ultimately will be more profitable for you. But guess what? You're going to need to help us out with the failed projects." From these other developers, which are going into bankruptcy, and lastly, I think that however they do this, there's going to be a bunch of defaults, a bunch of bad loans, and so I suspect there's going to be a need to recapitalize some of the smaller banks as well to make sure that they have the buffer needed to withstand that shock. And they surely are worried about social stability now, with you know this phenomenon of the mortgage strikes and so forth. Are they prioritizing making the Ordinary person who paid for a property on which ground hadn't even been broken yet, and will never move into the place. Are they going to make them whole first? Is that the plan? So, in the financial world, when we think about a a default, there's a kind of 
hierarchy of investors who get paid, right? So if you are a shareholder in a company, you're going to get wiped out. If you're a bondholder who's lent the company some money, then you're going to get some of that money back. But there's going to be a kind of a hierarchy, right? Some people are going to get more money back. Some people are going to get less money back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a kind of a useful way of thinking about what's going to happen in China's property sector, right? You can think about the people who bought a home as the people who are going to have the highest priority, right? So there's going to be a bunch of pain as the challenges in China's real estate sector uh, is worked out. And there is going to be some pain for homeowners who see prices fall. And there's going to be some pain for home buyers who maybe see a significant delay before their property is delivered. But they're going to be the people who are at the top of the list when it comes to getting paid or being protected. Precisely as you say, Kaiser, because the last thing the CCP wants is for this to spill over into challenges of social instability. Who's at the bottom of the list in terms of getting paid? Uh, well, we're already seeing it. It's the foreign bondholders, right? Um, it's the foreign investors who lent China's property developers money in the in the dollar bond market. They're the first people to get burned. Yeah, I, I've been somebody for so many years have always thought that the Chinese government uh, will stumble through whatever crisis uh, comes its way and sooner or later will kind of do the right thing, at least when it comes to economic terms, if not uh, the advancement of human freedom. But I, I, I have to admit to feeling the last couple of years and particularly this year that I wonder if the, the leadership structure, the political environment has just become so completely stuck by the, the Xi Jinping cult, that the decision-making is not quite what it used to be. And that might take some time to, um, to figure out. But what we will know relatively soon is just how bad for China's economy this year's COVID lockdowns have been. Uh, I don't know if we'll be able to attribute everything exactly to the lockdowns, but uh, how bad do you think the damage will be to China's economy because of the COVID policies when the numbers come in at the end of this year, Tom? So we've already seen a bunch of it, Jeremy. Um, second quarter, uh, China's economy contracted. Um, that's pretty unusual. Uh, we saw it in 2020 uh, during the first COVID wave. Um, that's pretty much the only time we've seen it during the reform era. Um, so there's significant damage uh, to China already from the COVID zero strategy. Um, there's more damage to come, right? As long as you stick with COVID zero, you're constrained to lock down entire cities, entire provinces when there's just a few cases. We're seeing that happening again right now in Hainan. There's no reason to believe that other cities and provinces are, are going to be immune in the months ahead. So it's difficult to make a you know a clear forecast on it, but clearly it's a possibility that we'll see a repeat of what we saw in Shanghai and Beijing in other big cities in the months ahead with a further negative impact on growth. Now, as China, hopefully, after the party congress, begins the process of exiting uh, from COVID zero, there's more costs to come, right? There's more costs to come, both in terms of public health and in terms of economic impact. Well, well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, just to remind everyone, the new edition of China, The Bubble That Never Pops will be published on August 26th, so just a couple of days after this episode drops. But it is available to pre-order right now, and I highly recommend that you do so. 
Let's move on now to recommendations. But first, Jeremy is going to tell you what you can do to support the work that we do with the Seneca Podcast and all the other shows in the network. Over to you, Jinyumi Xianzheng. Thank you, Kaiser Xianzheng. Yes, please, please, please subscribe to Access. This is our membership program, which gives you our daily email newsletter that goes out uh, in the afternoon New York time every day, summarizing all the big news from China, from the Chinese media, from the Western media, and from our own sources and our own original uh, journalists. Um, you also get access to everything be behind our paywall. Uh, and I have to tell you, uh, for the freeloaders out there, the paywall is getting much, much tighter. <laughs> uh, so we're asking you for actual shekels uh, if you want to see the goods. And it would be really great if you would uh, subscribe to Access. All right. You can find details on our website. Just click the subscribe button at the top right-hand corner of the page. And the URL, thechinaproject.com, is working. Uh, and that is where we will be uh, from September the 1st. September 1st, all of our stuff is going to be at thechinaproject.com. All right. Okay, on to recommendations. Jeremy, you start. What do you have for us? I have, you know, I like uh, crime fiction. You and, like crime. Uh, I like crime, yeah. But uh, my father actually turned me on to this incredible series uh, written with the uh, pseudonym Richard Stark. Um, the name of the actual author is Donald E. Westlake. Um, and he wrote, uh, you know, I, I guess 70s to uh, end of the 90s, early 2000s, I think. Um, uh, this series uh, with a hero, an anti-hero named Parker, who is a career criminal uh, who does mostly large-scale heists and thefts. Hmm. And these books are completely amoral. There's not a single, uh, you know, moral person in them, but they're amazingly compelling and um, uh, really, really uh, tight uh, writing that is uh, just a pleasure to read. Oh, wow. You've sold it well. I'm definitely going to check those out. They'll sound terrific. Tom, what about you? What do you have for us this week? So I think probably like you guys, I read a bunch of China books. And in the last couple of years, there's been what I think has been a kind of rather dreary series of China books, often focused on US-China relations, which arrange a kind of already publicly known set of facts and quotes into a slightly new configuration, apparently for the central purpose of allowing the author to claim that they're a China expert and they've written a book on the subject. So I wanted to recommend a couple of books which I think do not fall into that category and which bring something significant and new to the table in terms of the research uh, and the reporting behind them. So the first is Surveillance State by my old Wall Street Journal colleague, Josh Chin, and his co-author, Lisa Lin. Now, Hannah Arendt, the great philosopher of totalitarianism, described the process by which the German secret police tracked people they were interested in. For every person of interest, they had an index card and they put the person of interest as a dot in the center of that card, and then they drew a concentric circle around it. And within that concentric circle were all that people, all that person's immediate friends and family. And then they drew a second concentric circle, and into that circle they placed all of their acquaintances and work colleagues. 
And Hannah Arendt said, the only thing which prevents that surveillance approach from being completely all-encompassing is the size of the piece of paper. Now, of course, with social media and with geospatial data and with cloud computing, businesses and governments now have the capacity to do that surveillance on a much, much larger scale. And nowhere has that process been brought to a higher standard of horrifying perfection than in Xinjiang province. And what Josh uh, and Lisa do uh, in surveillance state is tell the story of what's happening in Xinjiang Mm -hmm. and also expand out to tell the broader story of surveillance technology and the way it's being used by state actors elsewhere in China and here in the United States. It's a really compelling book, brilliantly reported, beautifully written. I highly recommend it. The second recommendation I have um, is from uh, an academic called Victor Shu. Mm-hmm. Victor actually makes a cameo appearance in the China debt story. It was Victor who used an innovative research technique to first draw to public attention the extent of the problem of debt in China's local governments. Sure, But Victor's interests go much more broad, broad than that. Uh, he's also an expert in China's elite politics. And in Coalitions of the Week, he presents a deeply researched and revisionist history of China's elite politics from Chairman Mao through Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and Xi Jinping, and makes the case, throwing the analysis forwards, that Xi Jinping, as he moves into a third term, might adopt a coalition of the weak governing strategy surrounding himself with relatively weak leaders, well, relatively weak followers from rival factions who can't challenge his position as the number one leader with negative consequences for the quality of China's governance. So Surveillance State by Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, Coalitions of the Week by Victor Xu, um, both highly recommended. Yeah, both of those books are actually on in my current pile and uh, I'm planning on on interviewing all the authors. I already have something scheduled with Josh and and Liza or Lisa, and we'll be reaching out to Victor really soon. Uh, all this sort of ahead of the 20th Party Congress. So I've got a lot of work to do. Hey, thanks. Those are great recommendations. All right, for my recommendation, I'm going to go something frivolous. Um, it's it's a show on Hulu called The Bear. It's a great TV show. It's about a, a top flight chef who comes back to Chicago, his native Chicago, to run this grimy Italian beef place that his brother left to him when he died. And it's in shambles. I mean, the finances are all completely screwed and everything is, you know, it's, it's not up to code. And But the food is great and it's got a loyal clientele. Uh, the show itself is getting its really, really rave reviews everywhere and, and deservedly so. It's, it's really compelling. Uh, it's super fast-paced. It's really brilliantly shot. The acting's great. Just the kind of, you know, gritty kind of local authenticity of Chicago. Uh, I've actually learned a ton from it. And, and plus, you know, just watching all that cooking happening, this guy really does seem to have great chef chops. Kaiser, I, I, I can't decide if the contrast between your recommendation and my recommendation is making me seem like intellectual and high-minded or unbearably pompous. Uh, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hope it's the former. Or me just being very lowbrow and, and like intolerably just kind of frivolous, right? <laughs> But in, in any case, uh, I, I think, you know, we can be all things, right? So we can watch, you know, 
TV shows about chefs in Chicago, and we can you know, read books about the techno-authoritarian dystopia of Xinjiang, and can contain multitudes. <laughs> anyway, Tom, thanks so much, man. It's great to talk to you as, as always. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Jeremy. It's been a blast. Thank you, Tom. That's uh, always uh, such fun and so informative to talk to you. Jeremy, yeah, you know, as always, just all, lots of fun. Kaiser, thank you. That was a pleasure. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook. We're now at, at SupChina News. And uh, be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.